You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host from New York City, Ankit Panda, and I'm joined today by The Diplomats Editor-in-Chief down in Washington, D.C., Shannon Tiezzi. Thanks for joining me, Shannon. Always a pleasure, Ankit. It's good to have you back. I think we're continuing a a tradition that we started three years ago um, with the podcast, which is that we've done a podcast on every Chinese plenum since the third plenum. Um, It's kind of been a tradition, and it's always fun to talk about Chinese politics. So I'm glad to have you on since... um, October 24th to 27th marked the sixth plenum of the 18th Party Congress of the Communist Party of China's Central Committee, which uh, wrapped up with a a couple um, joint documents. But there's been a lot of speculation out there on what this plenum means for the future of the party, for the future of Xi Jinping as a leader, for the future of the anti-corruption campaign. So these are just some of the issues that I'm looking to get into on this podcast with you today, Shannon. Um, And also, you know, since this is a geopolitical um, a podcast focused on geopolitics, I think it's interesting to also talk about how we might see intra-party issues playing out in terms of China's foreign policy. I know there's been a lot written about uh, the PLA reforms in particular and how that's caused some issues between the military and the civilian leadership in China. We saw some pretty remarkable protests in Beijing in October by uh, veterans who were displeased by uh, the way benefits were going for uh, PLA veterans. Um, And also, if we have some time, I do briefly want to talk about the Taiwan Strait since we have you on, and I know that's something that you watch very closely. Uh, so Shannon, let's talk a bit about the main takeaways from the uh, the sixth plenum of the 18th Party Congress. So obviously, it seemed to me like this had this was a very introspective plenum in many ways. Um, it was inward looking, looking at internal party processes. Uh, naturally, one of the developments that got a lot of attention in the Western press, and I'm not sure if it was interpreted exactly the right way, was Xi Jinping's ascendance to core leader status, uh, which is something that every Chinese leader um, since Mao Zedong, except for um, Hu Jintao, has been afforded. So we can talk a bit about that. But what, in your view, are, you know, basically the three things to know about this plenum for our listeners? Okay, well, I would say the first thing to note, and I think this is why this particular plenum has attracted more attention than some of the previous ones, is that this is the final plenary session of the 18th Central Committee of the Communist Party of China. And what that actually means in practice is this is the final time that the current group of leadership is meeting and kind of putting their stamp on policy. Um, Next year, presumably sometime in the fall, although we won't know the exact date for some months to come, China's going to have its 19th National Party Congress, which means they will be appointing a new central committee, a new Politburo, and a new Politburo standing committee. And a lot of the speculation that you've seen coming out of this particular plenum is tea leaf reading, um, seeing if we can glean clues from what happened at the plenum about who is going to be on China's China's top leadership team next year um, when the new five-year term begins. So that's the first takeaway, is this is kind of a transitional plenum setting the stage for the future. Um, The second one, as you said, is this was very much focused on intra-party issues, uh, intra-party supervision and the new rules for governing intra-party life. Uh, This was really about institutionalizing Xi Jinping's anti-corruption push and seeing if they can move this from something that's incredibly dependent on the leadership um, having the will to carry this forward and becomes something that's just a systemic part of China's bureaucracy and is self-sustaining. And those two kind of combine in an interesting way because the current leader of the Central Commission for Discipline Inspection, uh, China's chief anti-graft czar, as he's often called, Wang Qishan, is supposedly set to retire according to the 
kind of unspoken rules for age limits on serving on the Politburo Standing Committee. So those are, those factors are kind of coming into a clash with each other, which is, can she sustain his anti-corruption campaign after the leadership transition that's set to occur next year? Okay, so... Um... You know, obviously, a lot of this, again, gets into the realm of speculation, but there's been some disagreement uh, that I've seen among analysts of Chinese politics about how much we should make of the core leader designation for Xi Jinping. Um, you know, for example, uh, Chung Li at Brookings has said that this doesn't really mean that China is fully pivoting away from its uh, collective leadership and collective decision making at the highest levels of government to one man rule, um, you know, as we'd seen under Mao, for example. What, um, you know, what's your take on that debate? I mean, are we seeing a very clear pivot towards a more authoritarian China under Xi's iron fist? Or essentially, are we seeing more of Xi trying to consolidate his control over the anti-corruption campaign under himself as the core leader, but still maintaining the, you know, the post-Dung essentially um, institutionalized collective decision-making at the highest levels of the party? I, I think a lot of this gets a little bit overblown because you're, we're comparing Xi to his immediate predecessor, Hu Jintao, who is actually one of the weakest leaders that China has had, certainly since Deng Xiaoping. Um, so as you noted, who is the only Chinese leader to not be given this title of core leader? So in my mind, it's more sort of a return to the previous status quo than it is some crazy return to Maoist style uh, one man rule. I mean, you noted even Deng Xiaoping, who is the champion of collective leadership and the person who said, we're no longer going to have one man rule um, until the leaders, you know, basically passes away. And then you elect a new leader, we're going to have collective leadership with orderly transitions at set stages. And as much as the media attention focused on this whole core leader status, there's an equal commitment to uh, collective leadership, um, upholding that in the new documents that were passed. I think what's really interesting is she being the core leader is actually a subclause of a longer sentence that demands that the party have complete obedience to the central committee with she as the core. Um, so I think what we're really seeing here is the central leadership in Beijing is trying to assert its authority on all of the local branches of government um, from the grassroots level on up. And that's something that's been notoriously difficult for China for you know hundreds of years, if you want to go all the way back to the imperial days. And so this is both about asserting Xi's authority as the core of the Central Committee and also reminding all of these local leaders, hey, you're really supposed to be doing what Xi Jinping and the Central Committee tells you to do. And I think the second half of that is kind of getting lost in at least the Western media analysis of this. Right. That's definitely something I haven't read anywhere. So I'm really glad you brought that up. That's really interesting, the way it's just parsed out in the statement itself. Um, I guess that's what happens when you speak Chinese and you can actually read these documents. <laughs> um, you know, um, I, I do want to talk a bit about, um, I guess I shouldn't really call it civil military relations in the context of the PLA, since the PLA isn't a professional army. It's the army of the Chinese party in some ways. Um, but Shannon, I mean, obviously, one of the things that's really blown up over the year, um, over the past year, is Xi's sort of unprecedented reforms to the People's Liberation Army, the biggest reform since China's independence in 1949. Um, and I don't know how much of this is actually substantiated with, uh, you know, well-supported evidence or in how much of it is speculation, obviously, 
these are often very intertwined when you're talking about Chinese politics. But what's your sense of the relationship between, you know, the Central Military Committee and China's um, military leadership after these reforms? I imagine that, you know, there are some tensions now, and we might see these play out in form of a more muscular or nationalistic foreign policy, for example, um, after the 19th Party Congress kicks off. Um, but what's your sense of where things stand today? Uh, I think that one advantage that Xi Jinping had over Hu Jintao is that he has generally closer ties to the military, which translates to more loyalty from the military. Um, and yes, these these are drastic reforms that Xi Jinping is talking about with a reshuffling of power and sort of eliminating the individual fiefdoms that you had in the military zones as they existed before. Instead of having all powerful leaders in each of these seven zones, everyone's now, again, supposed to be beholden to the Central Military Commission. This is all about centralizing authority. Pretty much everything she does can be brought back to that in some way. So I think you're absolutely right. This is causing tensions. Um, the layoffs that come with consolidation, you're having a lot of upset now, unemployed military employees. Um, and of course, you have people who lost their previous cushy positions who are probably upset. Uh, but at the same time, I don't think she would have done this if he didn't think that he could pull it off. Um, you know, this is something that has been in the works for probably decades, if you want to really go back to it. Uh, when China watched the Gulf War is usually what's talked about as the point when China's leader realized, okay, we need to rethink our military because they saw what the U.S. was doing in terms of joint operations and said, we're not capable of that. And that's a problem. Right. So, you know, you fast forward over 20 years and now's the time when it's actually happening. Um, and yes, it is going to cause problems and tension. But the reason that it's happening now is, I think, because she thinks he can make it happen now. So obviously, we'll have to keep an eye on that. But I don't think we're going to see any sort of serious backlash. I mean, he's already taken out um, two who were considered two of the more powerful military leaders, um, the two previous vice chairman of the Central Military Commission. Mm -hmm. So if he's able to do that, I think he'll be able to control the backlash from these reforms. Great. Yeah, that's actually a good segue into what I wanted to talk about next, which is obviously the tigers and flies that have fallen to Xi's anti-corruption campaign and just kind of taking stock of where the anti-corruption campaign st stands as of the sixth plenum. Um, obviously, it's Xi's signature initiative. It's something that he brought up very quickly after becoming China's president and general secretary. Um, what is your sense of this anti-corruption campaign, Shannon? Obviously, I know it's caused, um, you know, there's attention in China. Officials feel like they can't really do their jobs the way they used to. And there's a, a sense that we're seeing a period of adaptation right now to this new normal in uh, Chinese bureaucratic politics. But um, overall, what's your prognosis? I think it's going it's going to continue. I mean, Xi Jinping has put too much of an emphasis on this and now basically focusing a whole plenum on anti-corruption, although they called it inter-party supervision and, and other terms like that. Um, that's a strong signal that, yes, this is going to keep happening. Uh, they're going to keep investigating people. And there's plenty of speculation that I won't get into about who's going to be next to on the chopping block in terms of tigers and flies. Um, but for me, one of the big takeaways was 
how little substance there really was. Um, of course, you had these two new documents. Uh, one of them was new rules on intra-party life under new conditions, which was basically an update to the 1980 dictate issued under Deng Xiaoping. Um, and the other one was regulations on intra-party supervision. And this does put a lot of the things that Xi Jinping and his anti-corruption helpers have been promoting into official party doctrine. Um, for example, a ban on nepotism or, or otherwise using your official power to benefit your family members. Um, strong emphasis against factionalism, saying everyone needs to be working together with the central leadership, not kind of creating your own little local kingdom. Um, saying you can't buy votes, you can't pay for promotions or accept bribes for promotion. But other than saying you are not allowed to do these things, um, that's about as far as it went. There's no new systems in place to prevent this from happening if officials are still inclined to do it. Um, so China has said basically it wants its anti-corruption phase to move from through three stages. The first stage is officials don't dare to be corrupt. Um, basically, they're too afraid to do it. The second stage is officials can't be corrupt. Uh, they're not able to do it. And the third stage is they don't want to be corrupt mm -hmm. at all. And I think China is still stuck in that first stage right now. Uh, what it's done with this campaign is it's increased the pressure and it's made a lot of officials afraid uh, to be corrupt. But it hasn't quite reached that stage where because of the checks within the system, they're not able to be corrupt. And I think we were, a lot of analysts were expecting it to move, and certainly the Chinese media said that the campaign has moved to that phase with the plenum, but I didn't really see a lot of that. Uh, more the documents are basically telling uh, cadres, don't do this, and just assuming that they will obey. Um, one interesting thing that didn't get a lot of play, so I do want to mention it, is that these both of these documents have an emphasis on reforming the system to allow for errors that are committed by leaders in the name of reform. Uh, so you mentioned that one thing we've seen is sort of paralysis in the Chinese bureaucracy. Uh, there's that old saying that the nail that sticks up is the one that gets hammered down first. So a lot of officials uh, reportedly are just kind of ducking their heads, trying to weather this storm, not making any decisions for fear that that will lead them to investigation and Rightly or wrongly, the presumption is that pretty much everyone who's in a leadership position in China at this point could be investigated and found guilty of corruption right. if they were unlucky enough to be targeted. Um, so I think the plenum recognizes that this is a serious problem. And it says, no, we want to basically let leaders off if they make mistakes, if they do something wrong, but their heart's in the right place. They're trying to implement these very difficult reforms that the central leadership is calling for. But again, it only says we should we should create this system. It doesn't actually lay out this system. So right now you're seeing a lot of nice sounding talk, uh, but not the actual changes to party organization that will really give it teeth. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, just before we move on, I do want to point out the scale of this. So uh, China Files Catching Tiger and Flies um, anti-corruption tracking tool, Shannon, which you cite in your article on the plenum, um, says that, you know, 11, um, 1,130 officials have either been arrested, expelled, or found sentenced for corruption. And among them are, um, we have about 139 who would qualify as tigers, which are 
large, um, you know, senior officials um, who've fallen mm-hmm. prey to this. Um, all right, Shannon, I do want to talk about, you know, one of the topics that's gotten a lot of interest. And I know this is kind of getting into the realm of speculation now a bit. So, um, you know, I'm just curious to get your thoughts on this. Uh, so we've seen reports that uh, Xi Jinping um, might be looking to potentially uh, break with recent tradition and stay on past, uh, you know, the two terms that has been uh, traditional for his predecessors, uh, going back to Deng. Um what is your sense of, you know, these rumors? I mean, right now, there's really nothing to give us evidence either way. We've seen a few uh, anonymous officials close to the party who've commented on this um, in a variety of sources, including the New York Times. Um, but what are we to make of this? You know, Chinese politics is it's always called a black box. Um, and I think that's the best way to describe it. Um, there's one analogy that I, th- I believe is from a Richard McGregor's book on the party, where he says trying to figure out what's happening in the you know inner sanctum of the CPC leadership is like trying to figure out what's going on in a play when you're not watching the stage. You're only watching the audience's reactions. <laughs> so you have very little to go on. Uh, you do have some signs and some signals, but you don't really know what they mean. You're basically just guessing. Uh, But if we are going to guess, there's one very interesting tidbit that came out right after the plenum, um, which was a, you know, fairly high ranking official, the director at the Central Policy Research Office was specifically asked about the age limit, which traditionally, if you're 67 or below, you are allowed to either be promoted or retain your spot on the Politburo Standing Committee, which is China, the pinnacle of Chinese leadership, in essence. Uh, and right now, as things stand, uh, f- most of the members would, would have to would have to step down, five of the seven. Uh, you would only be left with Xi Jinping and Li Keqiang, and the other five would be replaced, according to this unofficial rule. And he said, oh, that, that limit doesn't exist. It's folklore, <laughs> in essence. Um, which is interesting, because... Yes, it's never been officially codified. It's always been an unwritten rule, but it has been the norm in determining who gets to stay and who gets to go on Chinese leadership. And that's why the selection of the 18th Politburo Standing Committee was so interesting, because even back then, five years ago, you could look at the makeup and say, okay, most of these guys are going to be gone in five years, so there's going to be this giant rush to replace them. And now that's being thrown into doubt. Um, and the speculation is that Xi Jinping doesn't have enough of his allies in the proper place to be promoted now. So if he can hold off um, for you know another five years, because generally the tradition is you serve a five-year term as a provincial party chief, and then you can be promoted to the Politburo or directly to the Politburo Standing Committee, which is what happened for Xi Jinping and Li Keqiang, and why people immediately knew, okay, these guys are going to lead China eventually. And then after you've had kind of your training term, then you can be promoted to, uh, you know, premier and the secretary general of the party, or also the title president would go with that. Mm-hmm. So the thinking is that she is just now promoting his preferred allies to the provincial secretary level. So they're going to need five years there before they can then be promoted to the Politburo Standing Committee. So she's basically stalling. And instead of picking his successor this 
or next year at the 19th Party Congress, as tradition would hold. He's going to hold off and try and do it five years later. Um, but again, as to whether there's any truth to this, we we really honestly have no idea. And I would just ask anyone who's reading a story on this to keep this in mind. Um, you know, anonymous sources, Chinese politics in particular, anonymous sources are a dangerous game because you do have these different factions and sometimes it might benefit them to say something that's not entirely accurate to try and pressure someone else. Right. So it gets very confusing. Um, one other thing to keep in mind is, again, to watch Wang Qishan, who is Xi Jinping's you know, go-to anti-corruption czar, who is, according to these age limits, supposed to leave the Politburo Standing Committee. And that could also be what is going on here when that official says this age limit doesn't exist. Is It might not be that Xi Jinping himself necessarily wants to stay on, but he wants to be able to keep Wang on uh, for at least another five years, because again, it's been really difficult to make that transition from officials dare not be corrupt to they cannot be corrupt. And he might want to keep Wang in place until he's been able to actually iron out some of the systemic problems that allow for corruption. Right. I mean, I guess the alternative to, you know, just staying on himself is doing uh, what uh, Jiang Zemin did, which is just hanging out on the scene and pulling the strings from behind the scenes with no formal title. Right. And I, I think that's much more likely, to be honest, because it would spare him a lot of the I mean, Jiang Zemin got a ton of flack and a ton of pressure, right. um, f even for doing what he did. So you can imagine what Xi Jinping would face if he actually tried to maintain the official titles that would that give him power. So I think the collective leadership tradition is a bit more robust in China than some analysts would have you believe. But I don't claim to have any special knowledge of what's going on in Xi Jinping's head either. Yeah, no, well, that was definitely very informed speculation. So I think our <laughs> listeners will still be better off for having heard that. Um, I do want to ask you, Shannon, um, you know, just a final point before we move on to maybe talk a bit about Taiwan is um, where do things stand with Li Keqiang? Um, there have been, you know, some I've heard murmurs again over the past year that the economic topsy-turviness in China, the slipping growth rates, the stock market volatility um, would essentially come back to haunt the state council um, and potentially Li's uh, position. Is there a chance that we'd see Li maybe leave the scene uh, during you know, either the first plenum of the 19th Party Congress or potentially later? I don't want to say that there's not a chance because there's always a chance. Uh, but I, I do also think that those rumors are a bit overblown. I think people like to think that Chinese politics is, you know, kind of sexier than it actually is, when really it's very, very conservative. Uh, people don't really want to do things to shake up the status quo. And so while I think at this point, Li is you know, he doesn't have a lot of real power in terms of economic reform. So he is a useful scapegoat if Xi Jinping feels like he needs to basically sack someone to hold someone else accountable for China's economic troubles. But I don't think China's situation is that desperate yet. And in part, that's because they're not really making the progress on some of the reforms that they've promised to do, for example, supply side reforms with eliminating their overcapacity problem, which would involve laying off, you know, potentially a million plus workers in China. Um, they're basically just not really 
doing that right now. Right. So that is sparing a lot of the trouble that could conceivably have Li Keqiang's sacrifice to atone for. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I think that kind of wraps up my questions about the plenum. Um, so let's talk a bit about Taiwan, which I don't think we've actually done on this podcast um, since the DPP and Tsai Ing-wen uh, came to the fore. Um, that's actually been a really interesting development in the Obama administration's final year, since, as you note, we've essentially seen a regression in cross-strait ties to um, the situation that we had before the KMT and Ma Ying-jeou came to, uh, came to the fore, which obviously led to a range of developments, uh, which we've talked about in the podcast before, uh, that led to, um, you know, civil national a civic nationalism in Taiwan rising and uh, anti-China sentiment becoming more widespread. So, um, you know, the Taiwan Strait obviously continues to linger as one of the possible flashpoints in the Asia-Pacific um, at any given moment. Um, indeed, you know, China's um, latest defense white paper, though it got a lot of attention for focusing on maritime power and expeditionary naval warfighting, still pointed out that Taiwan is probably the primary warfighting scenario for the PLA. Uh, so when it comes to conflict uh, involving China and Asia, I still think it's most likely that, you know, the Taiwan Strait is where we should be looking. And, you know, not that I want to um, alarm anyone, but, you know, we have seen some worrying trends. I mean, earlier this year, cross-strait ties were essentially uh, nullified as a surprise by China, who said that we have really been talking to Taiwan um, and things really haven't seemed to have gotten that much better. So Shannon, what's your sense of where, you know, things might be going as we enter uh, 2017 soon? Yeah, the the cross-strait relationship right now is in this weird, I called it a time warp in a recent article that I wrote. Um, basically, when Tsai Ing-wen took office, everyone knew this is not the person that Beijing would have chosen to lead Taiwan. The question is, is how does Beijing respond? Under the previous DPP president, China basically had a two-pronged carrot and stick strategy. The stick was for the actual elected government of Taiwan, Chen Sui-bian, um, the DPP, which was just complete cold shoulder. We won't engage with you. We won't talk with you. We will start poaching your diplomatic allies. Um, but then the carrot was for the Kuomintang, the KMT, uh, which is the party that China has historically preferred to deal with because that party also has roots in mainland China. Uh, so you saw, you know, stepped up meetings and engagement with the opposition in Taiwan at the same time as cold shoulder for the administration. And I will admit, I didn't think Beijing was going to go that route. Again, because so much has changed in cross-strait relations. You have so much more engagement now. Um, under Chen Sui-bin, you didn't even have direct flights between the mainland and Taiwan. So it's a lot easier to just say, no, we're going to cut off contact. And that's not even going into how public opinion in Taiwan has changed to be a bit more wary of China. But that is basically what Beijing is doing. Um, and my article was pegged to the chairman of the KMT, um, Hong Shouchu, visiting mainland China, uh, which is obviously a very provocative thing to do on both behalf of the KMT and Beijing because they would never accord any similar honors to uh, Taiwan's actual presidents or even local DPP officials, as I mentioned in my article, have had trouble having any interaction with China. Um, the question is, is whether this is going to work, and I am very skeptical. There's a very strong sense in Taiwan that um, basically these politicians that engage with China are somehow betraying 
Taiwan. And a lot of this has to do with the feeling that the benefits of cross-strait relations are not equal, that you have some rich Taiwanese businessmen who mm -hmm. are benefiting and everyone else in Taiwan is not. Um, sort of a, a very unique Taiwanese aspect of the anti-globalization sentiment that we're seeing really all around the world. Uh, so people now in Taiwan are looking at people like Hong and other politicians from the KMT engaging with China. And, you know, there's sort of kind of a, a critical or even, which is worse, I think, an indifferent attitude towards it, which is, okay, well, you go engage with China, that's fine, we don't really care. <laughs> Whereas when Lin Zhan, who was the KMT chairman in 2005, made his visit to the mainland and cross-strait engagement people saw the promise in it but they hadn't experienced it yet so there was a lot more optimism about what it could mean for taiwan and a lot more willingness to embrace the kmt as the party who could bring that to you um, now i think the taiwanese feel like we know what cross-strait engagement means and we're not necessarily sure that we like it that's not to say that you know it's all bad and we don't want anything to do with china i think this sort of anti-China sentiment can get a bit blown out of proportion. It's, you know, it's caution. It's saying we don't want to be absorbed into China's grasp without knowing what's happening. You know, we need to be careful. And the, Hong, Hong is especially interesting because she's kind of too far right for the KMT. <laughs> uh, some of her party positions, for example, when she's running for KMT president, she actually was their nominee and then got got pulled because she was polling so terribly and she kept making provocative statements that were out of step with the rest of the party, particularly on cross-strait relations. So the fact that she's now the party chair and going to Taiwan and talking with Chinese leaders, uh, it, it makes for a very odd sort of parallel cross-strait universe that's not really gaining any traction in actual Taiwan. Right. And so you don't see any immediate prospects for improvement unless really Beijing decides to change something about its approach. Yeah. I mean, I I think that uh, Beijing has really painted itself into a corner here yeah, I agree. Uh, by explicitly saying we need Tsai Ing-wen to not just, you know, kind of implicitly accept the 1992 consensus, but say the exact words, I accept the 1992 consensus, which is really what they've said because in her inauguration speech and many times Tsai Ing-wen has said she accepts the historical fact of the 1992 talks, mm -hmm. um, apparently that's not good enough for China. This is a very serious red line issue that the one China principle be upheld in the form of the 1992 consensus. But it's just not feasible for domestic political reasons for Tsai to ever say that. Um, right. So she can't say it, and Beijing either doesn't understand that or doesn't care, and they're basically gambling that they can do what they did under Chen Sui-bian, which is wait it out. <laughs> We're just going to wait until the next election, make the KMT look as good as possible and the DPP look as bad as possible, and hope that that's enough to get our guy or our woman, if Hong actually ends up running for president again, into um, office as president. Um, I think their chances of succeeding are far lower this time around, but that seems to be the strategy they've adopted, which would mean basically four years of little to no cross-strait contact. Right. 
Well, um, I should say if listeners are interested in more context on what kind of led to this uh, situation in the Taiwan Strait and maybe the, you know, informed the election, um, I'd recommend listening to a previous podcast we did with uh, J. Michael Cole, who used to uh, report from Taiwan on, um, on the Sunflower Movement for us. So uh, definitely go check that out. It's a, it's a good insight into how, you know, Taiwanization has really um, started to take over the island's politics in a way that might, you know, just define the future of cross-strait ties for many years to come now. Um, Shannon, I want to thank you for joining me for this great discussion today. Yeah, it's always fun. Yeah, absolutely. And we hope to have you back on soon. And I should note that this is episode 100 of the podcast. So it is a bit of a milestone for us as well. So um, if you've been listening, um, I really want to thank you for your uh, sustained participation and interest in this podcast. And please do leave us a review and a rating on iTunes that really helps the podcast gain more followers. Um, And if you're interested in hearing anything particular that you haven't heard yet on the show, uh, feel free to just reach out to me on Twitter or via email. Uh, making a request, and I'll try to include it on a future episode. Thanks a lot for listening.